0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Forgecast. My name's Sam Towns. And I'm a very sleepy Alex Norton. (laughs) Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. Today's Forgecast is brought to you
1: by Robert Weber Abrasives. Make sure the next time you need abrasives or grinder belts for your workshop at all the best prices, you give a visit to webers.net.au to stock up. Yes. What have you been up to, Alex? I had a big day yesterday, actually. Um, Nissa, my wife, has learned to make uh, special steel. And she's Mm. she's had one go at it before, but it was kind of in the midst of Broden and I making a heap of special steel, and it was just a a, a mire with nickel. Uh, so it was pretty straightforward. Uh, this time she did quite a complex billet. Um, so it was the whole prepping everything. She had to relearn how to weld, and I got her to use the mm. MIG welder this time because first time she used a, a stick welder, um, and she wanted to learn to use the glue gun, as Niels calls it. Mm. Um, did really well there, and she did the entire billet start to finish with the fly press. Nice.
0: I did and see her running it on her uh, Instagram.
1: It was like 30 mil thick billet and she took it down mm-hmm. to five um, nice. on the fly press. And it performed. Actually, I, I haven't even had a proper chance to use it yet because uh, I had, I literally just made the dies for it on the weekend just mm-hmm. gone. Um, and so getting to actually watch it work and do its thing, it's um, – more effective, easily, more effective than the um, hydraulic press that I built for my YouTube video mm. and it takes nothing to use like it looks very violent, the movements that you're doing, but there's actually no little to no shock on the body It's great, wonderful mm. tool, very happy with it um,
0: It's especially good if you've got two people because you can have one person running the the press and the other person just running the the billet. yeah, I got to do the whole thing. I was I, know um, I'm
1: <laughs> I I had five knives to heat treat and she had five mm-hmm. knives to heat treat. Actually, no, I had six knives to heat treat. She had five knives to heat treat. And her five knives were slip joints. So they all had back springs that need heat treating. So I said, look, I'll do all the heat treatment while you're working your billet because you show her what to do once and she just goes mm-hmm. for it. Um so I'm just standing there just normalize, 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 normalize like all day. Um to get all these things heat treated while she's just slowly getting progressively more exhausted on the fly press. But she got it done Um, and I got the heat treatment done, which is good. So one of the knives in that batch was uh, a full-tang hunter that I'm doing for a friend um, that has been wanting a knife off me for ages but just hasn't gotten around to it Um, and finally reached out and showed me a heap of photos of what they sort of the style that they're looking for and what they like the look of aesthetically. And and this person is a very avid hunter and has been a hunter for a long time and actually started their um, employment history off as a slaughterman as well. And so they know mm. cutting up animals. Um, and mm-hmm. so they were very particular about knives um, and they, <laughs> uh, uh, after all of the discussion and everything, I had the discussion of steel selection with them. And one thing about um, hunters and, and, and slaughtermen and, and butchers is they tend to not know much about different types of steels. Just no, they really don't. But they know a lot about different types of knives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was explaining to him because he wanted like a st- to have a steel with it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I'm trying to explain to him like. Well, we could give you. I could make. I've got Martin said stainless that we could make it out of and everything. But I could also acid etch, like deeply acid etch, some high carbon steel, and it'll be different to what you're probably used to using because it's. There are commercial carbon steel knives. There's heaps of them, but they're the minority out there. Most of them are sort of stainlesses, and so you don't really want to use. Like you can if you know what you're doing. I've seen a lot of meat workers using steels and they really don't know what they're doing. Um, so I'm going to just trust me. I'll make you a knife that you don't need a steel for, for what you're <laughs> using it for. And he could see it was doubtful and everything. And then I showed him the video that I've actually, um, I think I've still got it saved somewhere on my Instagram of me batoning one of my knives uh, through multiple pieces of dry knotty wood and then into an antler over and over again. And then it still slices paper. Mm. and he's like nah it's good for me I'm- <laughs> that's all mm. i need to know um so yeah i'm i'm interested to have this thing tested he wants it to be uh both something that he can feel like he can beat on but he also wants to be able to hand it off to his son later in life mm. so it's got to survive that long uh despite being mistreated like as part of its normal use so <laughs> fun challenge for any knife maker. I don't need to make it super pretty. I just need to make it super tough. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it's going to be getting the the going through the ringer on my testing. I'm going to go pretty damn hard on. I go hard on my knives normally, but this one I'm really going to just kick the shit out of. Um, mm-hmm. So that should be fun. I'll probably film most of it so I can show him. Um, I start a new pair of Raptor folders, the liner locks that I do. Um, So that should be interesting. Um, Working on my new high-end folder, uh, all still early days, uh, and a couple of ambient projects that I I did because I was heat treating anyway and I had off cuts of Koi Baker's uh, Mokyomai steel that didn't didn't have them reserved for anything else. So I thought since I'm doing a big batch of heat treatment, and I hate doing heat treatment, this is why I'm building this kiln, um, I decided to just cut them out and profile them and, Um, may as well put them in the batch anyway. So, um, my song of the week this week, um, I've had Tenacious D on there before. Um, but I'm putting another Tenacious D song on there. One of their lesser known ones, but it's a great one. It's called roadie and Mm. anybody that's ever known roadies, have you ever known, have you known any roadies like professional roadies for a while? Yeah. They, they are, uh. A unique subculture of person, <laughs> let's say. Uh, that's a that's a that's a way to put it. Yeah, especially the career roadies. There, you could almost spot them in a mall. It's yeah, like, they're, I'm, they're... I'm pretty sure I know what you do for a living just by looking <laughs> at you. <laughs> they are a unique breed. That is, they're for really unique breed of people, and um, they they truly are, despite being one of the stranger types of human out there. Um I'm specifically talking about career roadies here. Um mm. but very rightly so, if it wasn't for them, concerts would be terrible. Live yes. performances would be awful. They are the unsung heroes of rock and and every musical genre. They they make the rock go, so to speak. 100%. And I think that's why they're a little weird because they have to work through some shit. Because the show just must go on; they, they, it has to happen. And so, it doesn't matter if they're tired. It doesn't matter if they're sick. It doesn't matter if it's raining. It doesn't matter if everything that could go wrong does go wrong. They are responsible, and they have to set it all up so that when the, you know, the the, the star walks in, everything's just perfect and everything. Yeah, just they works. also have to
0: deal with the stars sometimes.
1: <laughs> exactly, and all of the diva antics that happen with that. And so they've evolved over time to be from, you know, their early origins to being these just weird fucking people (laughs) who are legends in their own right. Like, they have every right to be as weird as they are. But never until this that I'm aware of have they been commemorated in song um especially not so perfectly today's just D did the song roadie to commemorate just how important and amazing roadies are these these guys and girls that just take it so damn seriously uh the music video for it is hilarious and kind of puts a bit more of a funny spin on the um on the whole concept, it's got Danny McBride in it playing one of the career roadies, <laughs> and he does such a good job of, of portraying one. I will say for those listening that like to listen to the podcast that playlist in their cars with their families, it is an
0: M-rated song. It's got some sexual <laughs> references in there and such. Then again, if you're listening to the Forgecast <laughs> playlist with kids around, you are destined for like the deepest pits of hell (laughs) yeah i i just
1: remember all the messages that i got from people that i didn't warn them about turn out the lights by steel panther uh, yeah
0: (laughs) i mean i thought it would have been obvious when we put fucked with an anchor on the fucking on the playlist you know like you know it Um, is it's not
1: it's it the fact is that roadies deal with some some wild stuff sex and drugs and rock and roll and they well, see it yeah. all, and it's mentioned and referenced in the song. Um, and I mean, we are all used to Tenacious D singing silly, funny songs. This is this is a true, honest tribute to roadies, and it's mm-hmm. actually it's a more or less serious song from them. And I it's mean, it sung, is
0: it is still funny because it's still it is, Tenacious
1: D. It but. is still funny, but it's um, it's it's one hundred percent truthful at the same time. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually one of my favourite songs of theirs. Um, and that tagline of, uh, I am the roadie, I make the rock go. <laughs> it's yep. just brilliant. So, uh, yeah, look that one up. But uh, enough of me rambling on. What have you been up to, Sam?
0: Nothing. <laughs>
1: Aside from <laughs> missing like- the episode with Stuart.
0: Yes, I am very sad that I missed Stuart. Uh, he I was sad to, to miss, to miss all you the too. Good- all the, good, uh, all the good interviews. You had Kyle while I wasn't here and Stuart while I wasn't here.
1: We did um, have a guest lined up for this episode that you could actually um, go with, but um, last minute changes forced that to
0: change. Yeah, I, I remember you saying something about that. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, I, I was away last week um, down south. I got to hang out with Bruce Barnett for a day, uh, or actually for about an hour. Um, did you say hi for me? Man. I did. I oh, did. Good. And he was like, who's that? Yeah, um, that's what I <laughs> thought he'd say. <laughs> um, no, so yeah, he he's preparing currently for Blade Show because uh, he's going over to Blade Show in Atlanta. Cool. Um, Taking like six knives. Uh, yeah, no, he takes like 20 over to the, the States because he's got a deal with mm-hmm. a distributor over there. Oh, Anything cool. he doesn't sell at Blade Show doesn't come home with him. It stays at that distributor. Fair. And it almost always sells the moment it hits the shop floor. So, um, <laughs> did you ask <laughs> him? Yeah. When he's coming on the show. I I did ask him if you wanted to come on. He's not a everybody. Wants under to. at the moment, and tech, yeah, no, and like he's he's kind of yeah, he doesn't really do the the public thing. No, he doesn't. Um, he's a very private man. His his place is beautiful, uh, absolutely yeah. stunning. Um, not a, like the shop's not as big as you would think. Uh, It's quite interesting. Uh, He's got a lot crammed in there. Uh, I desperately want his rolling mill. He's got like an 80-ton rolling mill. Like, this thing is a mechanical beast. The rollers are about like 140-mil round. Oh, Um, jeez. And he makes folders. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and yeah, this is it. Like, he's he's actually no longer doing uh, any other classes than folder classes now. Mm. Like, he was teaching... Um, journeyman smithing, uh, like journeyman style blades and stuff like that, for a while, and kitchen knives. Well, let's and doing face Damascus it, Bruce... forces, and he's no longer doing any of that. He's just doing folding knives. Bruce is the slip joint daddy. He really is. He's the king. I. He was actually putting together. He just finished putting together. Literally just before I rocked up, uh, one of the blades uh, that he was working on. It was one of his River of Fire feather pattern mm. Damascus folders with mammoth ivory. In the handles, and I'm like, oh, that's amazing. You know, like, how long did that take you to make it? He's like, ah, oh, uh, I was a bit slow on this one. It took me three days. <laughs> I was like, you suck, Bruce. You suck so bad. Um, but yeah, he's getting into engraving and stuff as well. He's actually got the whole GRS pneumatic engraving setup and stuff like that that he's learning on as well. Um, but yeah, and no, it was really that was really good. Um, I also finally got back into the shop this week, although. Uh, only for a day or two because I'm starting to come off my anti-anxiety meds and the reaction that my body has to that is very physical and it actually makes it unsafe for me to work with a lot of power tools. Yeah, it's how you um, lose a finger. Because, yeah, um, I don't want to maim myself for life because my muscles are twitching in ways I can't control. Um, so I got three Swedish pattern-ish hammers knocked out. Um they're currently sitting in vinegar waiting for me to take them out and grind them. Uh, I also did some grinder practice, uh, and that's how I almost lost a finger, which is what (laughs) Alex was uh, mentioning. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm trying to slowly get back on the horse. I have wanted to do some filming and stuff like that. Um, one of the other side effects of coming down off anti-anxiety or anti- depression meds is that they do tend to cause you to slump into a depression. Um, because their whole job is to keep up your serotonin levels as you come off the meds. Your serotonin levels crash pretty hard. And uh, serotonin, is the, <clears throat> serotonin is the hormone that makes you feel happy. Um, one of them. So, well, it's one of them, yeah. Serotonin dopamine. But serotonin is the one that is the contentment <laughs> hormone, basically. Um, so yeah, I've been struggling with that uh, as well. I'm very lucky that I have uh, some very supportive friends and a very supportive girlfriend who's kept me my head above water. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm hoping that in a month or so I will be, uh, off the meds or down onto the low dose that I want to be on. Um, and all of this will level out. I'm just trying to keep my head above water until then. Mm. It's been very fun and I appreciate everyone's patience with me. I I hate that. I hate keep having to ask for it. Um, (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's forthcoming regardless. I know. Um, but yeah, so other than that, I, I haven't really done anything. I did do a little bit of work on the Pugio dagger commission that I've had for like a year now. Um, yeah, I saw that. Got the grinds roughed in. I need to take it back to the grinder because I realized that my twitchiness was causing it to be all kinds of faceted. Um, so uh, I started hand sanding on it and then realized it was going to be a, like a six day hand sanding mission to get it right. So instead, I'm going to wait until my hands stop trembling, and then I'll take it back to the grinder. Mm. <sighs> and I've got a couple of blades that I can hand sand in the meantime. Uh, I got a wrought iron back sax and a like a mono steel sax, um that I want to put handles on. They're heat treated and everything.
1: Stacks so of saxes.
0: Stacks of saxes. Um, got some cool ideas of what I want to do for the handles, so I might do that. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it for me. Um, my song of the week this week, I, I was talking, I can't remember what, I think it was on one of my Instagram lives that I did where I do like singing stuff on my Insta. Mm-hmm. And um, I, re- I realized that we don't have Fleetwood Mac on the playlist. Don't we? I don't think we have a Fleetwood Mac song on the playlist. All right. And I could not, I, I, I looked and I couldn't see it, but then again, there are like 180 <laughs> songs on there now. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot. Um, but one of my favorite songs from Fleetwood Mac is the song "Everywhere." Um, now I fell in love with a cover of it, but the original is is just as good. Um, and I think that there should be some classic Fleetwood Mac on the on the playlist.
1: Have you um, seen so ev- the Fleetwood Mac episode of South Park? I have not. Where they go to Iraq and. Stevie Nicks leaves, gets kidnapped, uh, but nobody notices because there's a goat there. And then just take the goat <laughs> and just walk around with a goat and do it. And she does a concert and the goat's oh just like, Ahh. I actually
0: think, I actually think I had forgotten that episode, but now that you're seeing it, I remember. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And funnily funnily enough, I've actually seen Fleetwood Mac in concert. Yeah. And the goat probably would have done a better job. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um. <laughs> Unfortunately, Stevie Nicks and Mick Flynn and all those guys—the drugs did them bad, <laughs> and they—they they are not what they used to be. Um, it was—it was probably one of the worst concerts I'd ever been to. I was paid to be there; otherwise, I wouldn't have been there. <laughs> uh, I was working security at the time, but yeah. So. Um, I was very disappointed because I have been a Fleetwood Mac fan for a long time so um unfortunately yes age and and drugs will catch up with you apparently. Yeah. Unless you're Keith Richards. Well, yeah, but then again Keith Richards is an immortal vampire that just happens to invest, you know, time into making himself look like uh you know, aging. He's again. actually Dorian Gray.
1: Exactly, yeah. Dorian Gray who could snort anthrax and be fine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, he's just yeah a perpetual human. Mm-hmm. Him and Keanu Reeves have that you know like that pact mm-hmm. to to stay alive forever. And um, um, uh, Maggie,
1: um, what's her face, Professor McGonagall? Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith. Yeah, I was watching. Yeah. I rewatched Hook. Brilliant movie, by the oh, way. Yeah. But that was like thirty Amazing. years ago.
0: <laughs> and yeah. She still looks the same. <laughs> I know. She's like, it's one of those people that yeah uh, just it never changes. You know what I found funny? I actually found out something interesting about Hook. Um, yeah. Glenn Close, the actress, mm. the female actress, is in Hook. But no one would recognize her. Was she's she the wife? Pi- she's, no, she's the pirate that gets thrown in the boo box.
1: Oh, dressed in as a man. Yeah, she's yeah, she's
0: like, you know, full-on in makeup. And I only found that out like a couple of months ago and I was what what? Wait. I never what? knew that was Glenn Close. <laughs> it's actually Glenn Close, like, you know, Oscar-winning fucking actress, Glenn Close. <laughs> well, that that happens like in uh, The
1: Force Awakens, the stormtrooper that Rey uh, manages to convince to drop his gun and leave her and take up, un- unbind her and leave her. Yeah, when she first discovers to use the foot, it's Daniel Craig. Yeah, there was an there was an extra there that was supposed to be that role, but he was just happened to be on the set that day. Like, <laughs> can I do it? And they're like, Yeah, sure. And if you listen closely, it's definitely his voice. Um, but yeah. Glenn Close might have been like that. Maybe she was just hanging around.
0: Maybe yeah, I don't know. But I just thought it was hilarious because I I like I know what Glenn Close looks like, and I had never noticed that in. The movie hook, which is one of the greatest movies. That Can Robert we uh, sp- spare
1: um, <laughs> a moment here to uh, just appreciate the irony that on a blacksmithing podcast, the surname that I was unable to remember was
0: Smith. <laughs> that is quite ironic. This is mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, Maggie Smith is like a, a national treasure.
1: Oh, she's awesome. I want her to be my grandma.
0: She's amazing. I would hate to have had her as a teacher though, because she she has got that McGonagall stare down oh, yeah. Pat. Yeah, the Gollum like, stare. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. Anyway, on that tangent. Yes. Shall we do sorry. our inspirations? Sure. Who would you like Who's to Who's been for inspiring it? you? A fellow called Andrew Mears.
1: He's every mm. so often like I'll follow people, um, for ages before I actually like notice how many <laughs> followers they have uh uh-huh. and I'll like they will become fixtures of my Instagram browsing like people whose work I will recognize by the work before I even see who posted it and mm-hmm. then one day I'll notice that they have like nobody's following them and I mm-hmm. kind of want to like go through like a, I can't help but compare to my following, and I kind of want to go through personally every person who follows me and physically shake them until they start <laughs> following this person. It's like, why are you not following this greatness? Mm. And um, Andrew Mears is one of those people. He is just
0: masterful
1: at what he does. Amazing, yeah. And
0: Andrew is incredible.
1: He 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 does. He's a sort of of bowie knives, chef knives and things like that, filleting knives. But where he really specializes, and this is why it's so close to my heart, he really specializes in daggers and folding knives. Um, In that arena, he just never ceases to amaze with everything he puts out. Don't get me wrong, his bowies and chef knives are also excellent. But he does uh, incredible engraving. He does incredible snappy automatic opening mechanisms. He does incredibly detailed, rich Damascus patterns. He does incredible sort of playing with shape and curvature and symmetry. And and his work, his attention to detail is mind-numbingly good. He does gold inlays and things. He's done like um, skeletonization, which is unlike anybody else that i've seen like some of his skeletonized push daggers which mm. are damascus or sometimes have patinated um hormones through them sort of akin to what Ball knives does but around a skeletonized push dagger um it's just when he decides to do an art piece you can't help but notice it it's Phenomenal work, and he goes by solid state studios uh, on instagram solid underscore state underscore studios. His work is just absolutely masterful it's incredible um and why more people aren't following him i don't know not that not that not to say that like you're the number of people following is any representation of um the quality of your work, I'm saying that more people need to be exposed to this because it is nothing but inspirational when you see it and more people deserve to actually have that in their life.
0: Yeah. He's also, um, that's not his public page. That's his Isn't private it? page. Yeah. All oh, right. His, his public page is Mr. So M R dot M E E R S, which has a significantly larger following. thankfully. Oh, there you go. Um, but yeah, the the one that you just linked is his private page. You have to follow him in order to see his posts. Still, yeah.
1: like, even on yeah, Mr. He's... Mears, his following it, more people need to see this
0: man's work. It's incredible. Hundred yes. percent, I agree. His Damascus work is blah. My God, the yeah. the panda the panda dagger full recently. Yeah, yeah amazing. Watching that
1: come to life was incredible, and um, I know you'd probably relate to some of his like uh, embossed frogs and things that he likes to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just yeah, uh it's it's constant inspiration, but it's 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 kind of one of those makers, and we've talked about so many of these people, but makers that their work is so far above where you're at that it's mm-hmm. sort of like a, a distant mountain that you're just constantly trying to run towards. But every step you take, it doesn't seem to get any closer and you wonder how they got there. Um, but, yeah, it, the the guy is absolutely gifted and absolutely skilled. It's uh, painful to look at sometimes, but, uh, geez, I love
0: the pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he is spectacularly talented.
1: Yeah, so uh, that's that's my Inspiration of the Week. How about you, Sam?
0: So, actually, funnily enough, um, my Inspiration of the Week is fairly similar to oh. Mr. Mears. Um, like, he does similar sort of work occasionally. Um, and his name is... I, I came across him, before I say who he is, I came across him just following hashtags on Instagram. Like, I am very rarely on the, like, Discover page. Just looking through photos, I just tend to look through my my um, my newsfeed kind of thing. Yeah. But I realized that I could follow hashtags on Instagram, and they yes. would show up. And so I followed stuff like hashtag blacksmith, hashtag bladesmith, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And occasionally, it brings up gems for me to to follow. And I had never seen this guy's work until today, funnily enough. Right. Oh. Uh, and I was I was just scanning through this morning. Um. And his name, I'm probably going to butcher this because he is uh, Spanish. But it's probably Jota Lemos. or uh, Yeah, it's J-O-T-A-A dot L-E-M-O-S on Instagram. Lemos. Um, like lemons without the N. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he does a lot of like traditional style Japanese inlay stuff, which is what originally uh, I got interested in. Because I saw he'd done uh, some inlay work of like a snail on a on a a katana Mm suba, but then I went to his page because I was you know I'd never seen his work before and I wanted to kind of get an idea of who this guy was and he does some amazing like Damascus work. Um, He's he's followed by a bunch of the the same bladesmiths that I follow, but he's his work is so simple and so clean and yet somehow just elegant. It's just. I don't know. It's got that that feel, yeah, um, and that he, and presence. he really has an he has an eye for lines. It's one of the things that I noticed is that all of his pieces have a really nice flow to them. Um. Mm. So yeah, I I kind of just I, I started scanning his entire his entire back catalog. He's made pipe tomahawks and katana and. It's a great variance to the styles and types of things that he makes. Yeah, exactly. Like he's, he's, he doesn't like specialize in any one thing. And that's, I think what I really loved about it is that he is such a, you know, jack of all trades as it were much like myself as I see myself at least. Um, And so, yeah, it's, I, I I was surprised that I'd never heard of him before and never seen his work before, but it was stunning to see. And so I immediately went, yep, nope, this is a guy that I need to follow and people mm. need to know about. Um, because, yeah, I mean, again, he's a criminally underfollowed uh, creator as far as I'm concerned for the yeah. skill that he puts in.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, some of and, those I mean, supers are incredible.
0: Yeah, the, the detail that he puts into... Like his engraving and stuff like that, he he manages to do something that I am struggling to do, which is bring things to life through in like through imperfection. Like the whole practice of Japanese engraving is surrounding imperfection rather than perfection. It's the whole idea of how do you make an imperfect thing perfect? Yeah, and. I I struggle so hard because my, my natural inclination is to want to make everything perfect, to make everything smooth and clean and all this kind of stuff. And so a lot of my engravings, I feel, end up looking a little lifeless because they are too clean. He manages to to bridge that gap and actually make things more visually appealing through imperfection. It's just, I yeah, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to learn, teach me um, but yeah so definitely well worth a, a follow if you're interested in that kind of thing and I, I love the, the Spanish flair he puts on some things like when he does his gaucho knives mm-hmm. um, something you don't see commonly in like the ABS kind of side of things so yeah definitely well worth a look have they done a gaucho knife on Forged in Fire? I think so. Once. I don't, I don't remember. Uh, it would have been an early season. Mm. Maybe one of the ones Jason Knight was on. Maybe. <laughs> oh, well, with
1: inspirations out of the way, um, we're going to be getting into emails as the topic of the week because, once again, you guys have flooded our inboxes. Yes. Um, so... Um, We'll get right into uh, Technique of the Week.
0: Technique of the week. Week.
1: week. The Technique of the Week is lightly frying your ear fillets, thanks to the handsome fellas at Nordic Edge. Knife steels, handle materials, kits, not to mention every tool from tongs to power hammers, can be found on their easy to use website, Nordic Edge dot com dot and don't forget to check out the australian knife making awards which are actually being hosted by nordic edge and you can find the details of those on both the nordic edge youtube channel and the australian beginner knife making group facebook so yes
0: <laughs> even half asleep uh, i can make you giggle oh man um i was gonna say gonna clarify that the fact that we've been inundated with with uh, enough uh, emails that we can make an episode out of it is actually fantastic because it you know it means that we've got more context for what we're actually talking about because otherwise we're just bringing up random crap and we don't know if it's interesting to you guys. So we just love the sound of our own that, voices, please. really. Yeah, that's it. That's why we're doing yeah, this. That's right. That's why we've um, done it for you know almost three years. Yeah.
1: And remember, if you do have questions, do email them to the show and, and not uh, send it to our personal Instagram simply because both Sam and I do this full time. So um, we take the time, we actually like segment the time to do the show uh, as mm. part of our job. So it's much easier to have everything in one place instead of having to go to each of our accounts. And I can't access Sam's messages and Sam can't access mine. Thank God. Uh. Poor boy would be traumatized.
0: Specifically speaking, like um, Alex does all of the technical stuff on that side of things. Like I don't do any of the audio or or the uploading or anything like that. So sending your messages directly to Alex just increases his workload beyond what he's already taken on. I am literally just a voice on a microphone. Like for this pod, as far as this podcast goes, that is my input.
1: (laughs) It's, It's much easier to be able to just
0: open Gmail and go. Oh, there's a list. Yeah, exactly, yeah. neatly, <laughs> neatly packed for me. So you know, like I don't even have I don't even have the the password to the Forgecast Instagram. Like <laughs> Alex runs yeah. all of that. So I won't, I won't let him have it. He'll
1: start. No, he'll start it. putting up photos of I don't know. Well, he might put photos of Shadow. Maybe I should give it. And never, mm. we don't see Shadow enough.
0: Well, I don't see Shadow very often either. So that's true. Not even when you go to your shed. No. um <laughs> that's a story. Anyway. Yeah. Well,
1: our first email comes from Thomas Kelly and he says, dear the Forgecast, cast long time listener, first time caller. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've both helped me so many times in DMS already. And I'm extremely grateful for how open you are with sharing your knowledge. Sam, I love my hammer. Alex, I'm winning that knife. I think he's talking about my slip joint. Um, I am only up to episode 76, but I'm trying to take notes as I go. I have a question and would also like to respond to the DreamWorks query you posted a few episodes ago in my timeline. (laughs) Yeah, that was a couple of years ago. (laughs) Yes. Yes said, firstly, is there such a thing as too much love for a knife that you have given to a customer? I watched my mum go through the steps of cleaning and oiling her chef knife and could see nothing wrong, but I am also a huge fucking noob. There are some tiny red rust spots on a recycled leaf spring Euro chef knife I made her, and I've never had any... Uh, I've never had this on any of my own knives that I've made for use at home. She swears blind that she's following the wash, dry, dry, dry oil process, and I wonder if she's doing it too often or something. Not sure how red rust spots can form if you're doing everything right. Any odd tips you can advise on would be appreciated. As you've also said, people do weird things. Yes, they do. Hmm. My dream project would also be a door lock, that could go on Notre Dame Cathedral. But in the meantime, I'm addicted to tool making, and much like Professor Kilburn's ever burning lamp idea in The Name of the Wind, I'm convinced that there is a way of making a perfect pair of tongs, spring steel handles with quenchable bits, or some such wizardry. May seem like a humble goal, but I feel like tools are what separates us as humans. And if I can make great tools that a blacksmith would want to use, it would fill my heart with joy. Thanks again for all you do and all your guidance power to you both, Thomas and Kelly. Well,
0: that's lovely. Thank you, Thomas. So. Um, I, first of all, uh, I, I appreciate a man of, of good taste. And thank you for the uh, name of the wind um, <laughs> <laughs> reference. I love that series. Um, but yeah, so first question, the, the rusty kitchen knife. Only one way rust happens. There's there's literally one. Yes. And that is Um, oxygen getting to the steel. One thing that. Water or air, doesn't matter. One
1: thing you didn't actually mention is what is the surface finish of the steel and what has been done to it? Was it pre-oxidized? What um, grit did you take it to? Because if you take something to an 800 grit, it will not rust as readily as something that you left at 120 grit, Uh, Mm -hmm. simply because at a very small level that is smaller than the human eye can see, there is much more surface area on a low grit finish than there is on a high grit finish. Uh,
0: because of the grooves that the sanding scratches leave. Yeah. Um, the other one is if it's been used to cut like um, high acidity, yeah, yeah, like high acidity stuff, like fruits, vegetable, like uh, fruits or uh, acidic vegetables, like tomato or uh, potato or anything like that, it can lead to pepper spotting. Pepper spotting is basically uh, the rapid formation of spots of uh, ferrous chloride. uh, Ferrous, sorry. Ferrous oxide rather than ferric oxide. So ferrous oxide being Fe304 rather than Fe203, the red rust that we're used to. Those pockets can then capture moisture so that even when you've, you know, done your wash, you've dried it, and you put your oil on, if it if it isn't thoroughly dry, like left to dry properly, the oil will just encapsulate the water underneath that pepper spot. Yeah. Um and that's, that's totally normal. Like, a bit of steel wool, give it a rub with some oil, done. Fine steel wool. <laughs> fine, yes. Fine, 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 fine. Extra 4-0. fine. The finest you can get. Not, steel wool. not
1: your dish scourer.
0: <laughs> I mean, you can do that as well if you want, but it's going to ruin your finish.
1: Um, yeah, you can also um, pre-oxidize steel, which will give it um, some resistance to it. Um even just doing a coffee etch on steel it sort of creates an oxidization layer that prevents mm-hmm. uh, or doesn't prevent it it it's like the difference between water resistance and waterproof Um mm-hmm. but it's it, like oxidization doesn't happen as quickly and readily on already oxidized surfaces it's why the process of finishing Damascus properly takes so long because you can't just pile it on top of, pile oxidization on top of oxidization. It doesn't quite work that way. And if, you know, you need to settle things in properly. Another thing you haven't, um, uh, or you may have pointed this out in a photo or something. I can't remember from this email, but if you've got a brute to forge finish on the spine of Mm -hmm. your knife, um, I am a huge, what's an opposite of a fan? (laughs)
0: <laughs> Sam,
1: you're you're good with words. What's the you're opposite antithetical
0: of a fan? To, to, uh <laughs> Yeah, I
1: I every time I see a brute de forge chef knife, I cringe a little inside, um, because it's just asking for bacteria and nonsense to build up in those grooves. And if bacteria can build up in them, so can tiny droplets of water. Um, we all sort of think of water as being the smallest amount of water as being a droplet. But um, that's just because of surface tension. Like Sam said, you can seal water droplets under a layer of oil. Um, and the best way to think of it is that, I know this isn't technically accurate, but it, it helps to think of it this way. If you think of the surface of steel as slightly porous, um, it's filled with tiny little pockets. And when you oil it, you're trying to fill all of those pockets with oil so that Nothing can sink through the oil to get to the other side, but if those um, pockets are there and the oil's not present because the knife's been used a lot or, or washed thoroughly or something, because remember soapy water will get rid of oil, um, you need to um, make sure that the little pockets aren't filled with water droplets. So yeah, um, water, water displacement oil gets rid of it really well, but you don't want to use that on a food uh, a food preparation knife. <laughs> so a good air drying will do it as well if it's been dried thoroughly. Paper towel actually has a capillary effect if you dry with paper towel, whereas a tea towel does not necessarily have a capillary effect. And what I mean by that is if you were to have a puddle of water sitting on your benchtop and you were to lay a um, tea towel next to it so that it just touches it would the water be sucked into the tea towel probably not but if you put a lump of paper towel next to it it would you would actually see it draw the water in so what you dry a knife with will affect it but there's so many factors
0: the other one the, on, the only other one i can think of is what is the knife being kept in um, mm. is it like in a butcher's block uh especially like a wood one which can contain moisture Uh, or one of those horrible, um, like um, they've got like shish kebab sticks (laughs) that you stick the knives into. Anything that it's going to grate against is immediately going to negate the oil coating that's on it. Mm -hmm. So it's going to rub that off and therefore leave it open to oxidization. Um, Most people that I know that own carbon steel chest knives have a magnetic knife holder, like a, a magnetic strip holder for their knives because it keeps them open in the air, there's only one point of contact, and the rest of the blade is coated in oil, so it's not worried about it. Yeah, um, I really love magnetic strips, and I, I want to get one when I actually have a kitchen. Um, <laughs> but yeah, unless unless it's being stored in something that's specifically designed not to let it rust, like a proper sire um, that like, Japanese chef's knives come in, uh, or something like that, then it's going to rust um, at some point couple other things is what type of oil are you using? Um,
1: like food grade mineral oil is great for food grade knives, but it tends to be a thinner viscosity than other things. Um, you can use, um, depending if it's, if it's re-oiled often enough, you can use things like walnut oil or peanut oil. If there's no allergy Problems with that, they do. They can't be left for extended periods with those because it's a food-based oil um, and can go rancid. But if it's being used regularly, it's no problem. But also, where does your mum live? And I don't mean that in the creepy way. I mean it, she might live <laughs> by the sea, um, where no matter how you treat metal, it will rust just from the air. Um, She might live in a super humid environment. I don't know. Um, Environmental factors are huge when it comes to rust. And talk to any automotive mechanic um, who lives in a coastal town and they'll tell you all about it. Um, Cars are about as – they they do so much work to rust-proof the frames of cars, but if you live in a coastal town, those frames are rusting. They are going to rust just from the air, the salt sea air. Is mm-hmm. awful yeah. for steel. Um and it doesn't matter what you do. So I don't know. Maybe your mum lives by the beach. I don't
0: know. Yeah, I mean, like, like even where I live, the humidity can be really bad sometimes and that will make everything rust. It's making mm-hmm. all of my freaking engraving chisels rust and it's killing me.
1: Yeah. Poor Niels will turn red if he ever visits you. <laughs> He's got so much steel embedded in him. But uh, lots, lots to think about there, Thomas. We have inundated you.
0: Yes. I just realized we may have messed up. I just realized
1: that we missed our technique of the week. <laughs> First email of the week brought to you yeah. by Nordic Edge. There you go, Thomas.
0: It's, we are both, we're both like hanging on so by tight. our fingernails. We're both fucking exhausted. This is literally, we're recording this the night before. The, you know, I'm just, I'm just gonna alive. say,
1: I, I've got, I've got to call out some bullshit. I watched a video earlier today of how to make you feel awake if you are tired during the day, and they gave me this bullshit of looking up for ten to fifteen seconds and lifting your chin. Because, <laughs> and I'm, I've been doing that. Is not doing shit. <laughs> that had 40 million views. God damn it. Lies. Yep. Oh, Theatricality man. and so deception.
0: Pseudoscientific bullshit. It'll get you views every time.
1: <laughs> Nothing beats coffee. <sighs> Although, um,. Long time listener of the Forgecast, Stefan, um, sent me some of that berserker coffee from Germany that's like hyper, Mm -hmm. the most most high caffeine coffee in the world. I am a veteran coffee drinker. That (laughs) shit gives me the jitters. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack after a cup of that stuff. God damn. I used to be literally like a 12 to 15 cup a day guy. (laughs) That stuff puts me on the ground, man. I I have it's in the cupboard I'm not using it I'm saving it for emergencies
0: anyway anyway like our stuff up you know notwithstanding um (laughs) technique of the week this week our fail Thomas's benefit so there you go Thomas you're just like pre-technique
1: of the week for the first time so and when special. you listen
0: to this in like six months or whatever, when you finally catch up to this episode, you're welcome. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> this what is the only problem with sending us, an, sending us a question when you're like listening back, like to the backlog. <laughs> you're not okay. Okay, to- Guy,
1: guys and girls, listen to the show. I want you to fess up. I want you to be honest here, and I want you to if you're on the social medias, if you're if you're seeing this post and you, you're on, on our Instagram, which you should be following. If you didn't realize that we stuffed up and you only found out when we realized, I want you to comment <laughs> so. Why don't you to yes. let us know. Did you let even notice? Could we have gotten away with it? Or were you <laughs> sitting there thinking, hey, I don't know, why they didn't do tire the week? Because <laughs> I bet most of you didn't notice. Uh,
0: it, was, it was a smooth transition into a fuck up. <laughs> you were lulled by
1: my sweet caramel baritone. That's
0: right. <laughs> Technique of the week this week is turning. Turning, not bending. Make sure that you use your indicator first. That's right. Correctly. Oh, yes. Up or is left, down is right.
1: Yeah, that's right. Goddamn blinkers. Gotta use it in um, the parking lot.
0: <laughs> Although on European cars, it's the opposite way around, because the fucking like the indicator lever is on the left-hand side. So up is right, down is left. I hate it. I drove a BMW for the first time like a month ago. I hated it because every time I went to indicate, I turned on the freaking windshield wipers. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's weird. But the windshield wipers were saying, I'm going right.
0: I'm going right. (laughs)
1: That's it. Anyway, turning. Um, If you don't know in black, turning. I'm always always liking to tell people that they're not using rounding hammers, they're using turning hammers. Um, and I have had people message me saying, what is turning? Um, turning yeah. is, is basically bending on the short edge. It's, um, think yeah. of it like making a horseshoe. If you've got a, um, a bar of steel that is wider in one dimension and thinner in the other one. So it might be like a pristine bar of 1084 from Nordic Edge that's 3.5 mil thick. And 35 mil wide. Um, turning it would be putting that 3.5 mil edge on your anvil and bending it down that way, uh, making it round yeah. the corner, so to, so to speak. Forging Rainbow Road. <laughs> <laughs> now, now doing this is difficult, and it presents challenges, and it is a test of a blacksmith's skill to be able to turn accurately with few if any, corrections as you go because that bar is going to want to twist, it's going to want to fold on you, The corners, inner corners, going to want to collapse if you're not doing it right, and most of all, it's going to completely jump out of your hand while you're doing it because turning mm-hmm. takes exponentially more force than bending. And if you're working on a thick enough piece, it takes a lot of force, <laughs> a lot more than you'd think, which is why turning hammers exist because they have a general forging face on one side, which is flat, and they have a turning face on the other, which is almost halfway between a flat face and a ball-peen face, rounded. And that focuses your hammer force into one small point, magnifying your strike force, because you're not trying to deform the metal in this. You're not upsetting. You are actually trying to bend it over. And it's best done in short short step passes so you'll slowly feed the work uh, across the edge of and over the edge of the anvil whilst doing skipping blows with the turning face of your hammer and you will by doing that you will bend it a little bit or turn it a little bit and then you'll do the process again and again and again until you get to the desired size now while you're doing that, it's going to upset your bar slightly. So you have to actually correct for that by putting it back on the flat and knocking down the thickened bottom that's going to form. But by doing that, you're going to start undoing the turn to a certain extent. So you have to try and get as much turning done as possible each pass so that it's not counted when you flatten the bar out again.
0: I would also highly recommend if you haven't, tried turning before look up forging a horseshoe yeah, and see how a farrier does it because most people when I've like tried to teach uh, something that involved turning or bending normally you'll put it over the far edge of the anvil and tr- smack it downwards right mm. try and bend it down over the edge of the anvil problem with that is, is that you're putting upward force on the end that you're holding onto whether that be the bar or normally a pair of tongs
1: and it's going to jump right out of your and, hand
0: yeah, in the in the worst case, it's going to flip out of your hand and either up into your face or into the person that's all across the room from you, or it's going to just jar the crap out of your wrist and it's going to make a really nasty sharp dent in the in the work from oh. the edge of the anvil. Farriers, what they'll do is take their tongs, position them so that they're basically ninety degrees to the stock, so that the the stock is running. Um, laterally through the jaws rather than parallel with the jaws and then they will position the part of the other end the you know both ends of the stock and the central part being the heated part um put the other end on the horn and then smack the middle bit forcing it downwards using the brace of their stomach or their thigh with the tongs and the horn to then bend that stock and the advantage that has is that there's no sharp points in contact with the work so you're not going to be denting or, you know, like causing little nicks in your work, especially because we're using that rounding hammer, that round face is going to stop you from putting any chop marks from the edges of your hammer into the the work. And that can start your bend really well. If you want to turn it into a 90 degree bend later, you can take that to the anvil and then f- like flatten it all out and stuff like that. That'll make it a lot easier. But getting that bend started, I highly recommend that method rather than using the over the edge of the anvil trick like half the people I know do. <laughs> Maybe that should be a Forgecast challenge one time. Make a horseshoe. That'll be an interesting one. I reckon that would be a really good competition one.
1: Because it's not just the turning. It's the, the hole punching and the clips. The clips are probably the hardest part.
0: And not only that, but there are so many different kinds of horseshoe. Like, Yeah. You, yeah. You not can, all of them have clips,
1: your... but like, if you're going to make a horseshoe for a challenge and
0: you don't put clips in it, come on. You're taking the easy route but I mean like I would really love to see like do a competition and just like say make a horseshoe and then just see like anyone makes like a super intricate heart pattern um, like off centre horseshoe for like bilateral dissection of the hoof Um, that would be really interesting we've probably got like one
1: actual professional farrier listening to the show who's gonna be like (laughs) it's Terry's time to shine (laughs)
0: So meanwhile, we, for unbeknownst to us, Craig Trenker has been listening in this entire time, <laughs> and it's like, yes, <laughs> Oh, man. Like,
1: Sorry guys, you all lose. <laughs> I challenge anybody to make a horseshoe better and faster than him. It's just, oh, oh god, watching him work, making tongs. It's just,
0: oh, if it's, you if you hard. haven't looked at if you haven't looked at the uh, the World Champion Blacksmiths Association uh, YouTube channel. Well, Craig, Craig Janica was my
1: um, um, inspiration of the week for his tong making videos uh, about two years ago. Yeah, yeah.
0: I um, have watched literally every video that he's made, like horseshoes, tongs, whatever he's made. I've watched it because yeah. that watching that man run a hammer is just is oh it, my god! It's,
1: it's like watching a professional dancer.
0: Yeah, it, it is. It's like, it's like watching Van Gogh with a Van Gogh with a brush. It's just yeah. amazing incredible
1: but anyway get out there and and give give turning a go because uh it's a valuable skill to have it's something you won't use that often but when you do need to use it knowing how to do it will save you a lot of gutting. let me tell you
0: now here's another challenge for those listeners that like maybe you didn't yeah maybe you noticed that hey why didn't they go into the thing did you think that when we said turning you were going to think about lathes Mm. because i did when, when Alex told me that the technique of the week was going to be turning, I was like, this is going to be great because I'm going to have nothing to say. You're like, God damn it. He's,
1: he's got a lathe and a mill and he's turning into a machine machinist. I knew it. Yeah.
0: He's, just gonna, he's just lording over me all of these awesome tools that he has <laughs> access to. Like, yeah, yeah, Sam, got a lathe. And then I That's snatched it back with the force. technique. <laughs> anyway, can't until we're tired. Now that we've done technique of the week, we can get back into emails. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and next email comes from Ben. He says, hey, Alex and Sam, I have a few questions for you if you don't mind my asking. First off, um, what are your Patreons? I did actually email Ben back for this, um, but if anybody else is looking for our Patreons, both Sam and I have the links to them in our Instagram bios. Yes. Uh, he says, secondly, I bought an arc welder because the flux core welder that I had sucks. I'm assuming you mean a MIG welder there, Ben. Um, I thought it was just me, but after listening to you guys' episode on welding, I was quite glad to hear that apparently flux core welders are just messy as hell innately. Um, most of the time. So, there are decent <laughs> welders out there that can get good results out of them. I'm not one of them. And I know it's so like
0: not- I mean, flux core, flux core itself, flux core raw, like wire, is terrible. Mm. But mig welders themselves are not. If you're running right. argon through them, yeah, right, right. like because uh, or some no, other inert gas. Yeah, flux core welder is basically just a mig welder that's not running inert gas. That's all, mm. um, because it needs flux core in order to weld. And yes, they spit like crap. I hate them. Yeah, uh, and that's why I don't have a mig welder. is because I can't afford argon. <laughs> He says, I've spent quite a few hours just
1: practicing getting an arc going, but apparently the rods I'm using that I got from a buddy are hard surfacing rods and are not really made to fuse metal together properly. So I was wondering what type of rods you like to use for just conventional welding, as in trying to actually marry pieces of metal together. I know that partnerable steel and mild steel are probably not going to want to weld together easily, but if I remember correctly, you said there was a specific type of rod that you like to use for that. I'm also curious about heat treats. Uh, well, this this next part is long, so I'm going to address this first. You want general-purpose electrodes, and you want dissimilar yep. electrodes. So general-purpose yeah, is for you just sticking 63rds. to... Yeah, Yeah, well, different, different countries refer to them by different codes. So what they're called okay. here are different in England, different to America, but they're all referred to, regardless of the code, as general-purpose electrodes. And they're usually about 3 mil or an eighth of an inch thick. Um, although you can get them up to like quarter inch Um, but if you're just doing general mild steel to mild steel general purpose electrodes and go for the like the eighth inch size Um, if you are trying to put uh, two bits of carbon steel together or you want two different types of steel uh, and i don't necessarily mean stainless to carbon that's going to be tricky regardless but if you've got like carbon steel to mild steel or whatnot to similar welding electrodes um which are usually a bit thicker they're usually about quarter inch thick um for good reason um and they're nice and goopy and they they do a good job they're the two two types you want to have on hand and they will get you through 99 percent of the welding that you'll ever do
0: yeah and whatever you do don't use hard facing rods to try and connect like a handle mm, to mm, something mm. because if you're using it like forging handle it's gonna snap and um, mm-hmm. it's going to be bad, so don't do it. <laughs> and actually, Sam got me onto this really good trick is
1: using dissimilar electrodes to attach handles because they just yeah. goop on nice and thick and that's so much stronger than a general purpose uh, weld under impact, which you're
0: going to be doing a lot of. Yeah, uh, although I have learned the hard way that you should not use uh, dissimilar metal electrodes to weld up Damascus billets because the flux that they use smokes and that flux will inhibit any weld with no matter what kind of flux you use. Mm. Um, it's actually been painful. <laughs> I've <laughs> lost a couple billets to dissimilar metal electrodes. So be oh, careful. Geez. There you go. Mono-steam Pro metal. tips. <laughs> learn from our failures. Well, you know, um, that's what we're here for.
1: And part two, says, I am also curious about heat treats. What kind of heat treat would be good for an unknown steel? I work in construction so I let's just say liberated a lot of material. A large bulk of it. I had looked up the alloy and it's been it's between 0.5 and 0.7% carbon along with a bunch of other random crap. So in theory it should be hardenable, but it's not made for hardening since it's used to pin concrete barriers together. I've been working on a chunk of it, and it's hard as shit to move. I've normalized it twice now, but when I do heat treat it, should I just heat it up to around critical and oil quench to test it? If you could also refresh me on the firebrick recipe, including vermiculite and perlite, I would love it. That, by the way, there's a post on the Instagram for the Forgecast. You'll go back a ways, and I've saved it as a post because I get this so often, and I have forgotten (laughs) <laughs> so, um, 7724, I think. Quenching um, mystery steels, the best thing to do, and we've talked about this before, I'm actually playing a video on it of um, what, like a part two to my scrap steel video. I wanted to do a thing of what the process is to go through um, for mm. steels that you don't know. But really, the best thing you can do is to take um, a length of it and forge out. Several pieces that are about three inches long, nice and thin, like an eighth inch thin, um, and only about a a, half inch wide. Half inch wide. Yeah, that'll do. Um, Get them as consistent as you can, but get together like four or five pieces like this, and then heat the first one up to non magnetic, and then quench it in brine, Um, so salty water. Um, dissolve the salt in water. Don't just add salt to cold water. Boil water, dissolve salt into it, you have brine. Um, It's the most aggressive quench that you can realistically get. um, And then snap test it. Wear safety glasses, snap test it, and have a look and see whether or not it snaps cleanly and doesn't shear or rip. Um, If it does, it means it can harden. So now you need to get, start dialing it back like how aggressive the quench is to see how far back you can go. So try it in something that is like that you, else that you've got lying around like rice bran oil uh, or canola oil or whatever that you've got as a quenchant <laughs> um, and try it on all of these different bits and see how they snap. Um, and once you've got it sort of dialed in, you can then start normalizing it after uh, before you do the quench you could try annealing it first and then do a, a full-on three-step normalization process where you're a little bit below mag- non-magnetic then at non-magnetic then a little bit above it really thoroughly do that do your quench then snap it and have a look at the grain structure have you been able to reduce that grain structure down and get it nice and powdery If you can, then there's hope for the steel and you've sort of got an idea by then, you'll start be forming an idea of what you can use to actually achieve a good hardness with it. And then you can get it sent away to, um, if you don't have a hardness tester, you can get it sent, like a, I think you can send samples to places and get hardness testing done, can't
0: you? There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of material testing services around the world. Yeah. you just got
1: to look them up. And if you're, it depends on what you're trying to do with it. If you're trying to make a knife, you want to get like, at least like 56 Rockwell. I mean, you could do Mm -hmm. less, but 56 is a good sort of baseline to start with, up to about 62, 64. If you're getting in there, that's knife material, boy. Go for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just start having fun. But it's what this sounds like a long process to go through, but this is what you do when you know you have access to a lot of the same stuff stuff yeah if you had a pile, like different piles of different stuff and it was mayhem it's more you'd be probably better off just sort of testing your luck and seeing how you go but if you happen upon a regular source of a particular type of steel it's worth doing these tests to see whether or not it's actually
0: useful for you and realistically the time investment shouldn't be that much you could do most of this in a single day Right. Like you can do the forging, heat treating, uh, testing, and then all of the other stuff you can do all in one day. Um, And if you've got access to a lot, like when I started getting springs from my local spring manufacturer, they supplied me and they told me these are sup nine because we order them. But because they didn't have sup nine markings on them or anything like that, I decided to do testing. It took me a full day just to do it all everything properly. But yes, I could get an absolutely repeatable result that I wanted. Mm. Um, and it's worth the time because that way you are sure of what you're doing and also you're sure when you hand it to someone else. If you end up selling it or anything like that, don't misinterpret it and don't like tell people that it's 1075 if it's random scrap steel that you got off a building site. Make sure that you tell them where it came from, but at least be able to say reliably, yes, this is heat treated properly. And if
1: you do happen upon a large amount of it or a, a repeatable source of a particular type and you find that it can harden to an a extent good enough to make a product you can actually send off segments of it to get spectroscopically analyzed and then find out exactly what type of steel it is and then you can actually tell people that it is this type of steel um and you can yeah, also like look
0: up my... the heat treatment chart for it <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what I did with my hexhawks uh, funnily yeah. enough the the hex bar that I use for my hexhawks is all 1070 steel so Um, and I found that out through material testing.
1: Yeah. And the last part of his email, he says, lastly, I'm curious about grain patterns. So I made a quick first knife using unknown steel again and water quenched it because I had a feeling it was lower carbon. The file seemed to dig into it still. So I was annoyed and smacked it with a hammer and it broke. The grain pattern was extremely fine, like, say, maybe a quarter the size, if not smaller than average table salt. Is that what I should be looking for, or should it be more coarse? Love the podcast, and if you would like a picture of the grain on that knife, I don't mind breaking it again to show you what I'm looking at. Sorry for the long email, and I hope you guys are well. I actually have a video on this, a very (laughs) controversial video that caused a lot of people (laughs) to be very angry at me for a very long time, and I think some of them still are but I still stand by what I say in that video um, It's all about grain structure in knife steels. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, I mean, something having fine grain is not necessarily, you've got to check that it's hard first. I mean, if it broke that easily, then
0: there would be some hardness to it. I would say that the file dug in because it was decarburized. Like I'm, I'm thinking there was a layer of decarb on the surface, which the file dug into, and then you've gone to snap it, and it snapped like glass because underneath that decarb, it was glass.
1: Since this is, you've said this is your first knife, I'm assuming you probably don't know what decarburization is. Um, In simple terms, it's just the presence of it being under that much heat, oxygenated heat in your forge for the. Number of times that it takes you to forge out the knife, it's actually sucking carbon out of the outer layer of the steel. Um, It's sort of like how meat dries out from the outside and then slowly goes drier on the inside. But if you were to take a piece of meat that's it's all dry and crispy on the outside and cut into it, the inside is probably still nice and juicy. Um, Steel does the same thing in an oxygen-rich fire. And so So you can get reverse case hardening. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's exactly it's the inverse of case hardening. So you'll do the file test, and you'll feel like you're you're digging in, and it's biting. But it's actually just because the outer jacket of the steel is quite soft. So if you were to grind back just a little bit of the edge of the knife, um, just knock off. Oh, geez, what like less than a sixteen? That'd be thirty second of an inch. Yeah, um, less than up. that even sixty fourth inch, like ten thou. You're gonna get um, past that decarb layer if there is one, and then try file testing it. So if you if you especially if you did a water quench on steel that you know is hardenable, um, I would I would be doing that before file testing, before, especially before hitting it with a hammer and breaking it deliberately. Um, <laughs> yeah. decarb I is s- a thing. Like there are there are professional grade knife steels that are known to decarburize, and so people just prepare for it. Because they know it's going to happen. Five yeah, HCB two is great for that.
0: Um, I will say so. As far as like fine grain structure goes, while it is not necessarily the like the thing that we need to worry about the most when starting in knife making. I have a photo on my Instagram of recently I snapped one of my fighting blades that I was working on my birthday blade that has as close to industrial fine grain as you will find. (laughs) Uh, I was very impressed myself. Yeah. Literally can't see the grain. It was like, even in person, it looks like broken ceramic, like broken fine China. Yeah. Uh, And that's, that's basically what you're looking for. Ideally, if you want a visual representation of that, you, Alex and I really love to, to uh, recommend you grab an old file, uh, specifically an old good quality file, like a wheelchair or something like that, and snap mm. it, and you will see factory-grade grain. Yeah. yeah, uh, And then like that's what you want to aim for. But realistically, if you're not using thermally controlled kiln or a thermally controlled forge where you have a thermocouple and you're reading your temperatures and controlling things properly, you're not going to get that. Uh, the finer the grain, the better. If it's if you can see like individual sand grain pieces, then you mm-hmm. are way over temperature. <laughs> like you are, you are not normalizing properly. But yeah. yeah, the finer the grain, the better. But in the end of the day, if the knife can do the thing that you want it to do, the grain size doesn't matter as much. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, it's and always Alex, good to Alex have something proven that <laughs> it's always good to have something to aim at. Like I, I have, I like working with. Uh, 1084. It's my favorite steel to use. And so I have spent ridiculous amounts of time perfecting my heat treatment of 1084 in my particular setup to get the tightest, smallest grain structure that I possibly can. And I can now get it looking very similar to the inside of a file. Like I'll do a snap test and it looks like gray plastic inside. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy with that. But if you get me to heat treat W2, It probably wouldn't look that good because I haven't invested that time, but I have a repeatable source of 1084. I decided that's the one I'm investing my chips on and I want to know what I'm getting when I do my heat treatment with my setup with 1084. If I were to try and get that level of accuracy with like a dozen different steels, I'd be spending all my time practicing heat treatment. So you find something that you're wanting to work with a lot and you can get you know, get very good with it. Even with a basic setup, I don't have a kiln yet. Mm. Um, And because of that, I have to go through ridiculous measures to actually achieve that grain structure.
0: And even with a kiln, um, and this is something that uh, one of our our favorite channels, Outdoors 55, proved, even with a kiln, you can mess up the grain structure of a steel. Even if you follow the, the diagrams properly and all that kind of stuff, if you go a little bit over time on the soak, Especially with those hyper eutectoid steels like W2 and Ten ninety five. Yeah. So like it's it's important to know that it's not just about like having a temperature controlled kiln and stuff like that. A lot of it comes down to the forging and like the the treatment of the blade as it's going through the grinding and, and forging phases and stuff like that. So it's not like the ultimate thing to show like, you know, if I have a kiln, I know how to heat treat this thing properly. Yeah. Um, kilns just make it easier because obviously you can control the temperature at which it's at but you need to still know how to treat the steel properly it's a bit like
1: how i was having a rant the other week about how mills don't just magically do everything for you kilns (laughs) are are the same it's just just a tool that makes certain things a little bit more precise and a little bit easier overall but it still takes a great deal of skill to use i actually gave myself um sunburn in my face because I was staring into the forge and precisely <laughs> waiting for certain colours, and, and um, just because I'm I'm that nutty when it comes to 1084, and um, yeah, don't do that. By the way, <laughs>
0: that's yeah, bad. I'm um, staring into your forge, especially when it's at welding heat. It's actually it's really bad for your cornea. A lot of UV light comes out of there. So my uh, my boy Kyle Royer likes to wear IR three safety glasses so they're rated to infrared and ultraviolet light Mm. um, when he's doing forge welding because he doesn't want to lose his vision Um, yeah so you know like it might be worth investing in those in me instead i put a brick in the door and i just don't look inside
1: (laughs) (laughs) because guys if you lose your vision you won't be able to look at these handsome faces in the thumbnails anymore
0: exactly and you'd miss all of our frowning that's right all and if you want more frown buy looks. a budge, a fudgery shirt. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. Then he can be have that beautiful disapproval face all Sweet. day.
0: Shout out to Aaron Finn wearing one of the fudgery gar shirts to the Queensland Knife <laughs> Show. <laughs> <laughs> I just like I'm a little bit like, I I still find it mildly ridiculous when I find out people are wearing my face on a Budrigar's body just to random events. I, for one, see it as my masterpiece. Honestly, it is the, it is the, the, the best thing that Alex has I've, come up with. In a long I time. peaked
1: in my 30s, guys. It's, <laughs> it's all downhill from here. Hell, hadn't we all? I thought I was going to top it with Dagger Daddy. It didn't work out. No, no. So, anyway, next email really comes like from Chris Hendry. He says, hello again, Alex and Sam. I have a quick question that seems to be widely debated online. I take everything I read in forums online with a huge grain of salt anyway. But that's a different story for a different time. My question is this. After the quench, does it actually cause any harm to the blade to wait to temper it? I have a paragon kiln that I use for normalizing and temperature control for heat treatment. I intend on using this kiln for tempering as well, but waiting for it to cool down can take a few hours. Does anything change in the structural integrity of the blade if it just sits on my workbench or clamped in the vise between two pieces of angle iron until the kiln is cool enough to temper? Thanks, and as always, love the show and appreciate all you guys do. Chris, the answer is it
0: depends. No, the answer is Yes. The answer is like unequivocally yes. We're gonna, um, we're gonna. I, we're, the debate continues. <laughs> no, like I, I actually would have, I would have agreed with you, right? But um, I recently read um, a report by Kevin Cashin, and I was, it was after I'd heard a couple of knife makers that I know uh, talking about it, uh, mastersmiths, that in their experience they have left blades before, and there's been no, no problem, right? But then on the odd occasion, they'll have left a blade for a couple hours, and they'll hear it ping from across the room. Like, they'll have left it on the bench, and suddenly they'll just hear a ping, and it'll have cracked. And I've seen it happen myself. Like, I've actually had it happen to me when I've been waiting for my oven to heat up or whatever. I've, I've actually had a blade snap on me like M2 hours after the quench, because the thing that we don't understand, but the thing that most people don't understand about steel is that it's constantly going through phase change, mm. right? Like it's not, it doesn't just get to below um, M2, which is the martensitic nose, uh, the, the the final martensitic nose of quench and stop transforming. That's why cryogenic quenches are a thing. Mm. It's because that, that constant phase change happens as it gets cooler and cooler. And as it comes down to room temperature and below, it actually is still going through phase changes, which still causes stresses on the blade. Perfect example of this was Alex Steele's falchion build. Yeah, where where Alex um, from He's Bull watching Blades watching it like a metronome. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the that was the rapier. That was interesting. The the rapier was the that one was that was awesome. like oh, right. back and forth. But Alex from Bull Blades uh, was grinding on the falchion after they quenched it before they tempered it. Uh, He just wanted to take the the surface layer off, and as he was doing it, it snapped in his hands like it went pink because that that. phase, yeah, the phase change was still happening. You could hear it on camera over the sound of the grinder.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to clarify though, when I say it depends, um, obviously, like even just as a pure logical point, the amount of time between quench and temper should be minimized simply because every second that you are leaving a quenched blade um, out. It could be dropped or knocked or clinked against something particularly hard or damaged in some way. But the reason I say it depends is because while you are heat treating a blade, while you are bringing it up to temperature, it's a very constant, consistent environment in there even if you are slowly increasing the temperature of it, your the, the temperature inside your forge is more or less consistent or kiln or wherever it is. And it's a very predictable um environment. However, normal atmosphere anywhere is inherently changing. The humidity's changing, the temperature's changing, the wind chill can affect it if you're leaving it outside. <laughs> and if you were to have a let's just say I was to quench a blade and place it on, uh, let it let it cool to ambient temperature in massive bunny ears here um, and stick it on top of my pile of pallets outside my workshop. And it's sitting in the sun and I go off and do some stuff and I'm thinking, I'm only going to be 15 minutes, it's going to be fine. But in that time, the sun moves and shade goes over it and all of a sudden a cold wind picks up that's a huge temperature shift of realistically that blade's going to achieve probably twelve to fifteen degrees of temperature shift in the space of fifteen minutes. And a quenched blade, a freshly quenched blade, every part of that steel is under huge amounts of tension. It's all just sitting there mm-hmm. tense. And any stress rises that might be there, or even just the steel itself, the way it because of how it was quenched. Uh, is just waiting to just bust open, a little bit like what we talked about when we were talking about splitting wood that can mm-hmm. actually tear apart as you're splitting it. Uh, the tempering process relax that back quite significantly, but some people have also reported a blade snapping in
0: the temper. Mm. Oh, it's yeah.
1: For the, it's, it's the same thing, really. It's just those tensions are going to come out somewhere.
0: And the big reason but, for that, and actually decarb is a, a really good way to like segue to that decarb can cause this problem, mm. but also when tempering the heat is coming from outside in, right? Like it, it's much like a cooked mm. chicken. It's going to cook from the outside inwards. And yes, you're only talking about a very thin pro- cross section, but it still takes time for that you know process to happen. Uh, and as the outside is, is heating up and tempering, the inside is still crystalline. So if the outside allows that tension to be removed by shifting, like, tempered steel does by like allowing it to bow that bow could then shatter the inside of the the blade um i've seen it happen on um sanmai core that's been done with like mild steel jackets which is Is quite incredible to see (laughs) (laughs) um sometimes the core will literally tear itself apart inside the core like not not at the weld seams Literally down the center of the core, it'll just bust open.
1: Cause you'd think if it was gonna split, it would split at the forge world sides, but it doesn't. They hold nope. and the central core rips itself into two pieces.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so you end up with like you end up with like two Nemai billets. <laughs>
1: yeah. So like what I'm saying is ninety nine blades out of hundred, you might leave for a, a while after quenching them and they'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But then one will have that cold breeze or maybe the sun will dip or maybe there'll be a humidity change or maybe you were just unlucky and it will ping. Um, and so it- because there's no real way to predict any of this stuff, the best thing you can do is to absolutely minimize the amount of time between quench and temper.
0: Was it Jason Knight that re- was regaling us with that story of a blade that he was driving home with and it, like, pinked on him when it was sitting on the seat next to him
1: no no
0: like, who was it
1: he it was, was driving like a... home and he saw a javelina or something
0: and oh, that's right yeah no there was another bl- there was another um bladesmith that i was speaking to that was like driving home with a blade from his shop because he didn't have an oven and like on his drive home he just heard it go tink in the seat next to him <laughs> yeah <laughs> and cars are
1: terrible for that like have you ever felt your yeah. ears pop going down a, a mm-hmm. hill um Your steel is going through that too. Yeah. So you may as well get on a
0: flight. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, okay. Coming back to it, yes, Alex is correct. It does depend, and normally you'll get away with it, but these days I tend to be really anal about it and get it into the temper as fast as possible. While the technical answer
1: is it depends, the practical answer is (laughs) minimize the time between quench and
0: temper. (laughs) It's just don't take the risk. Yeah, that's it. I mean, most bladesmithing manuals that you'll find, like Jim Rissolaus and all those guys, it all says, just put it straight in the oven. (laughs) It's like, get it out of the heat treat and put it straight into the temporary oven.
1: So, uh, Chris, buy a second kill.
0: (laughs) Or or build yourself an oven.
1: (laughs) You can also, um, if you wanted to mitigate the chances, you could store the knife in an environment that actually mitigates atmospheric conditions. Like was burying say, it
0: in sand. Yeah. Or leaving it clamped. Like you, you were mentioned like leaving it clamped between two pieces of metal. Realistically, you're like allowing those pieces of metal become a heat sink basically, mm. which are, is evening out things. So that should mitigate yeah. some factors. Like I, I'm not going to say that it's a hundred percent reliable, but you yeah. know, that would be my option.
1: It would depend very largely on the shape of the knife too. Like, um, what details are in there that might cause stress rises that may fo- be act as focal points for cracking to happen um, yep. that don't require bending of the blade. Um, but, yeah, it, I mean, mitigating the atmospheric changes can potentially um, give you better odds. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, also, uh, if you want your kiln to cool down really quick, compress air. Yeah. Just open the door, keep the door open, turn the kiln off, don't let the electrodes keep running. And then blow it open with compressed, like, blow it with compressed air for a bit. That'll drop the temperature right down. Just be careful because you don't want to crack the bricks.
1: Good excuse to go out and get an air compressor if you don't have one.
0: Yeah. Honey, I need a new tool. But yeah, I mean, even just leaving the door open is a good way to get the heat down real fast. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Because they tend to be designed to hold on to heat.
1: There's also certain steels that they actually highly recommend that you take it to temper very quickly or cryo uh, very very quickly after quench, Mm. um, like ASAP. Well, yeah, um, with
0: with cryo, especially
1: because some of the stainless steels out there, they really want snappy temper happen.
0: Yeah. Because like with cryo, the thing is, is that with cryo, you're trying to continue the phase change that's happened through the quench. Mm. And so if you delay between quench and cryo, you're actually extending the period at which it's staying at one position, mm. and that can cause stress problems. So like normally you have to go quench, get it to room temperature, and then immediately into cryogenics. Yeah. So right next to Walt Disney. <clears throat> mm-hmm.
1: All right, so hopefully that helps, Chris. Um, Next email comes from Shane, and he says, I just wanted to drop a line real quick to tell you that value and content you guys drop is instrumental to the evolution of skills for a lot of us aspiring smiths. Keep it up, guys. Sam, keep your head up. Alex, keep being hilarious. Oh, I almost forgot. I knew it was covered in an episode in the past, but emailing would be easier than trying to find said episode. What is your recommended slash preferred brand of rotary tool? Are pneumatic ones superior in your opinions? Love you guys, Shane. I'm not aware of pneumatic rotary tools, but uh, uh, Sam, I, I mean, mean gr- like pneumatic you, gr- engraving tools.
0: Pneumatic die grinders, like, for like uh, aggressive possibly? die grinders?
1: I like Totally different volume- tool though. Sam and I both are big Fordham guys. We love our Fordhams.
0: When we're talking rotary tools, normally we're talking like Dremel style rotary tools. Um, The only pneumatic rotary tools I know of are like die grinders. And I would love both of them because die grinders serve a purpose in the forge, whereas a rotary tool serves a purpose at the bench.
1: I will Um, say um, when you look up the price of Fordham tools, it can be a little daunting. But um, we needed a second one in the workshop because uh, where I've got mine set up is um, it's literally too high. <laughs> it's a standing workbench <laughs> and my wife can't reach it. She actually has a step stool uh, that she carries around the workshop to use my grinder and things like that because I'm 6'6 six, six and she's 5'2. So it's a mm. big difference. Anyway, we had to get a second um, rotary tool for her to use at her workbench and um, – with the price of Fordums, I wasn't, you know, really in a financial position to be able to fork out for a second Fordum. So we got one of those. Um, I think it's Vivor, Vevor mm-hmm. brand ones off eBay. That thing has been going for a year now; has not missed a beat. And I have used it. I, I honestly can't tell the difference. Talks great, speed controls great, handles Obviously, all the but-
0: tools. With Fordham, you're paying for the warranty and, you know, like, the the name behind the brand. Yeah. Um. But, yeah, but no, uh, even it- a cheap pedal-powered, like, that's the big thing for me, was going from a Dremel, which has got that little stupid switch that, like, yeah. sets your speed, to going to pedal-powered was an amazing step up. Like, no, I, I, mean- I would never go back.
1: Well, that's it. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, obviously, if you can get an official Fordham, they are better. I mean, I love mine, and I've had mine a lot longer, and I've been using it pretty damn hard, and it's never skipped a beat. I've got different hand attachments for it, and it's a very useful tool. But if you are on a tight budget, those VIVO ones I have, mm. we've we've tested hard, and we do this full time, my wife and I, so it's gets it gets used a lot, and it's it's holding up. It's holding up yeah. really well, and they're only about like 80 bucks. Yeah, right. And I'm that's I'm impressed. So definitely for well a, worth it. For a <laughs> pedal powered flex shaft rotary tool that's got that sort of torque, and it does have the torque, let me tell you, it'll it'll take the skin right off your hand. Um it's yeah, works on hardened steel. It's bloody great. So Yeah, and I mean
0: the big thing, it thing is consider. it's not just the it's not just the tool that you gotta worry about, it's the bits that you're putting in the tool. Yeah. And there are infinite amounts of bits that you can use in a rotary tool, especially like a Vortum. The the advantage of a Vortum or a V-Vortum, you know, is that they are a chucked tool rather than a colleted tool. They're not like the Dremel, which has a collet. So you can use literally any size of diameter um, up to like four mil um, diameter shaft bits in your uh, rotary tool, which means that your uh, access to a thousand different like tools that you can use on it is, is amazing. Um, I have like, uh, polishing wheels and Scotch bright wheels and sanding discs and, you know, engraving bits and all that kind of stuff. Just hundreds of different attachments for my, uh, for my Fordham. It is an incredibly, um, modular system. It's amazing.
1: I, I couldn't live without mine anymore, to be honest. It's <clears> become <throat> such an intrinsic part of my workflow. Um, but yeah, um, if you are referring, and when you see pneumatic ones, if you are referring to air-powered die grinders, um, the torque on those is unmatched by any electric yep. ones. That's the only real benefit. They are a lot louder. They use much mm. bigger bits, um, but the torque on them, that's for destroying bits of steel. You don't yeah. do fine work with an air die grinder.
0: I wouldn't waste my time with the stones on those. Just get the tungsten carbide ripper bits yeah. for them. And um, the one thing that I've wanted a die grinder for, I don't have one, but the one thing I've wanted one for is to do hammer eyes, um, to like chamfer hammer eyes and stuff. Because, yeah, you can tear a hammer eye out in like five seconds with a with a, with a die grinder, whereas with a file, it's forever. <laughs> yeah. I actually um,
1: used one of them after getting, I'd, nev- I'd never used one before or owned one before until after I'd been using a Fordham. And a Fordham feels like using, you know, I don't know, driving a, a Vespa. Yeah. And then all of a sudden using an air die grinder. <laughs> it's like driving a monster truck. It's yeah, like, the- there is sheet steel in my way, and I want there to be not sheet steel in my way. <laughs> Gone. Yeah. Uh,
0: they are just they are <laughs> monstrous. And it's terrifying to use at the, at the start. Yeah. Um, because yeah, they, they will grip it and rip it.
1: Wear wear, wear a full face shield, an apron, and a cup.
0: As far as, like, if we're talking about engraving tools for stuff, like, you know, if you're talking about a rotary tool for use in engraving, um, the Fordham is much like the Dremel in that it's not high speed enough that that engraving is very clean. I've found, um, with any of the bits that I've tried to use, it is a little jumpy for rotary tool. I would go to a micro motor for that, but micro motors are incredibly expensive. Um, I think they're like three grand. Um, and then pneumatic engravers, obviously they're even more expensive. <laughs> like if you've ever looked up the GRS system of engravers, I don't recommend it because you will have your eyes fall out of your head. Mm. Um, I mean, I'd love one, but yeah. Anyway. Um so when it comes to that, like if you're gonna do just generic random letter engraving, then the Fordham will run you okay. Um, but for like fine detail work, uh that's why people like Alex Steele and stuff like that went to the pneumatic graver systems and the micromotors. They're just, you know, the higher end priced stuff. Uh I know Kyle Royer uses a dentist drill, which is basically mm. a micromotor. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean it's one of those things you get what you pay for,
1: really. But um, that's it. Yeah, if you are looking to get, if you're on a limited budget, go and have a look at those VIVO ones. There, they're uh, they're pretty damn good. Also, it's a quite a funny thing, actually. The um, at a glance, they look exactly like a Fordham, um, and mm-hmm. the housing for the motor actually still has the Fordham embossing in it. Like it was used. It's like they stole one of the molds from the Fordham factory. It was and
0: just, probably made in the same factory, yeah. It probably was.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, I, I was, I'm very impressed. Uh, if I ever have to get more, like to have one in the house or something because I use it for everything now, use it to do the mm-hmm. dishes, um, <laughs> I, I'll just yep. get more Vivores, to be honest. I, I've got my actual Fordham for when I really need to count on it for something. Um, but, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm impressed. Um, next email comes from David Pinn. I know David. He says, hey, guys, I have a few questions for you. After three years of blacksmithing and bladesmithing in a small propane forge, I finally found myself a coal forge to use. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I've never used a coal forge before, so my questions all revolve around that. Firstly, my forge is outside and therefore open to the elements. How does rain affect a coal forge? Should I get a cover for it when it's not in use, or does it not matter too much if the forge gets wet? Secondly, I am planning on setting aside at least a couple of days, just working with the coal forge, getting to know how to use it best. I know that using a coal forge is a lot more work than using a propane forge. So are there any tips and tricks that I should know to make the transition process a little easier? Sorry, that this is such a long question. I appreciate the sharing of knowledge on this fantastic podcast. Also, if your Mima- Marmite jars are lasting for years, you're not eating it properly. One jar per month is the proper rate of consumption. Pen. It's like Vegemite. Marmite sucks. <laughs> Vegemite <laughs> is superior. We're not it biased 100%. at all. percent
0: No.
1: <laughs> so, first off, very proud. I think every blacksmith should uh, do that, pay their dues, learn to use a coal forge. It is a bit mm-hmm. of an art form to use one effectively. Uh and especially if you're using Coke. Um, I like to use charcoal. It makes it a little bit easier, um, less to to think about. But heat management, air management, um, it's it's all very important still. Ash ash dumping, it's it's all this stuff that you gotta think about, which at first is very overwhelming and daunting. Um, because you focus so much on doing the, the hammering that you forget that there's this literally like living, breathing thing behind you that needs care. Um so Yes, takes a while, but after a while, you will just click, and it will just become this natural, thoughtless process that you just do every so yeah, often. This... You'll give it a give it a few cranks. You'll give it a rake. You'll knock <laughs> things around. You're like, oh, I don't like the
0: look of that bit there. I'll put that over there. Uh, and talking of rake, you'll need to make yourself some fire tools. Uh, yeah. a fire a fire rake, a fire shovel, um, and a poker is normally pretty good. Like a little little just a pokey stick. It's if
1: you make your rake rate. nicely enough, it can also double as a poker. Um, yes, you're usually sort of poking down more often than not. Um, yeah. But and the- it, oh, sorry. Go oh it. no, go, go for it.
0: Yeah, no, I was, I was the. I know he was referring to it as a coal forge. If you are using coal, like anthracite or bituminous, um, the the different coals will react differently, and they are so much more of a pain in the ass to use um than charcoal they are they do provide a better result overall because they're more uh you know btus per volume rather than per pound because they're about pound for pound the same as charcoal um but yeah those take an entirely different learning process to using charcoal um as far as it getting wet don't worry about it like I mean, make a cover for it if you want. If it's going to be raining on it while you're forging, that's going to cause a problem, obviously.
1: It steams up like crazy. I've <laughs> actually been doing a show when it started raining before, and um, it's funny actually. If you're running it well enough, and you're actually you you've got it going at a at a healthy pace, the rain will largely evaporate before it hits <laughs> it.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, there's and a little bubble using- forms above it. It's great. <laughs> If you're using like actual coal or coke, um, you use water to control the fire size in mm. most coal forges. Um, so you actually use a spray bottle to wet the coal around the fire pot itself so that the fire doesn't spread to all of the coal that you have. Because normally with a coal fire, you would have the coal piled around it. John Spitz has a great video on this on Blacksmith <clears throat> Forge. Yeah, because green coal requires cooking before it becomes coke, which then burns properly for a forging and so that's why you have the pile around it is so that it's cooking the outside coal and you could rake that into the center to make your your mate you make your fire coke. um and then dealing with clinker is another problem if you've got coal which is something you don't have when you have charcoal clinker is a glassy substance that builds up around the tweer the bottom air hole or side air hole no matter you know the whether forbidden donut. Or- the forbidden donut, uh, which will prevent you from forge welding. It makes things a pain in the ass. It sticks to everything, and it's really nasty. So you want to dig that stuff out and get it out of there, um, yeah. especially if you're trying to forge weld. But <clears throat> unfortunately, very... much, much of it is intuitive. You need to like play with it and actually get a hold of it. You will find a point where like
1: getting getting a coal forge started is a process. It's something that you need to reserve some time for. Um, properly getting it started, properly bringing it up to temperature and then getting it to a point where it is now consistent. You're feeding it at a constant rate. You're putting air in at a constant rate. You're adjusting it with your rake at a a constant rate. And when you get that at equilibrium and it's not changing anymore, then you're ready to forge at that point. Um, And a lot of people get put off by that process, but there is a deep satisfaction to being in a forge, actually forging, doing proper work on decent-sized billets, but it being silent except for a soft crackle behind you. Mm-hmm. No big rushing constant going of the, of the gas forge and roaring noises in, in, in your ear all the time. It's, it's one of the reasons that I was so happy to get the fly press because I really want to be able to do something like an axe but have a coal forge and a silent fly press and be able to just work on those big projects. But um, I was very disappointed to find out after doing my video on why I prefer charcoal forges. I know I don't use them often, um, but I do this full time, so time is of the essence of my work. But every chance that I get, I still light it up. If I'm doing recreational forging, I like the coal forge better. But I was very disappointed to find out that um, a lot of places find it very difficult to get charcoal, lump, hardwood lump charcoal. Most places, mm. if you can get uh, – they think of charcoal and they're thinking of briquettes, which don't don't put that in your forge at all. Just, no, just don't. Just don't. Hardwood <laughs> lump charcoal. But I know David's in Canada. He's one of our Canadian listeners, and um, I'm not sure
0: what the situation is like for charcoal in Canada. I know that coal is relatively accessible. Yeah. Um, and if you don't know Timothy Dick, um, D-Y-C-K. All Canadians um, know each other, Sam.
1: I know. He's they in, meet
0: at Tim Hortons and have a drink He's together. in Canada. He would be poutine. someone to contact because he probably has the contacts for the coal in Canada. I know that he's got coal forges. And he's uh, also a remarkably friendly guy. He's a nice dude. So yeah. I, I would hit him up. But he like, is I mean, I, I, Well, I mean, yeah, this is true. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure how close you would be to him or, or if that would help or not. But he probably has the names of everyone because he's one of the better known Smiths I know of in Canada. Ethan Hardy is another one I think of, but like he's not Canadian; he's American, I believe. Or Cat Van
1: forage. Forge. Cat Van forge. Might, forge. I'm not she sure she might if have some contacts. She might. She's got to get Maybe. a coal from somewhere.
0: This is true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so hit up some local blacksmiths see if there's uh, someone around you that knows. Tim's the only one I can think of when it comes to coal, like actual yeah. forging coke.
1: Maybe I should do a video for my channel on maintaining a charcoal forge or a solid fuel forge. You should.
0: Well should. It, I was thinking about it, doing it myself.
1: It is, it is a, a knack to it. And yeah. you will feel like you need four arms when you first start. You're like, oh, <laughs> I can't do all of this at once. And you will you see people panicking on forge and fire when they give them solid fuel forges. And those blowers with the ridiculously small cranks.
0: Oh. Yeah, like the the jack in the box handles. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And then all of a sudden, like Will Willis pops out of
0: their coal forge. (laughs) Your time is up. Um, Yeah, yeah, no, like, honestly, a a proper hand crank should be nice and long and have a nice big sweep sweep to it. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah.
1: But, uh, goddamn.
0: But you see some
1: people just not be able to light it at all or they'll forget to keep airflow going through. Because remember, if you're using coke or coal, it needs to have air constantly Constantly. or as as constantly as you physically can do in order to stay alight because it will just burn itself out without the presence of additional oxygen. Whereas charcoal, you bring it up to temperature and then you stop cranking, do your forging, and it will slowly cool a little bit and then you bring it back up again. But to bring it back up again only takes... You know, oh, a couple thanks. of seconds. It's it's great. You go through um, fuel faster. You very much do. You won't get quite as hot without the work. Um, mm. But overall, there's no clinker, and it doesn't need constant airflow.
0: And um, so for coal forges, I've found that an air gate system is really good. Yeah. Um, I was talking to the guys at the Calgary Blacksmiths Association, uh, specifically Gordon. Uh, from there, he's a great guy um, if you're ever out in Calgary. Um, and they have I'm sure coal David pin will be at in Kalgoorlie very often. Totally. Yeah. All the time. I'm talking to our other listeners, <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, uh, an air gate for coal forges are really good, especially if you're running an electric blower, which I highly recommend because you can have the air gate, have an idle setting and a go setting. So the idle setting is just a small amount of air to keep the coal lit. And then the go setting is, you know, full open. Um, and that's really helpful for coal forges, and I really liked their setup for that because it means that they don't have to constantly monitor the coal, uh, yeah. and they're also not burning through the coal as fast as like a full blast of air would give it. Um, that small amount of idling air just keeps the coal lit so that they don't have to worry about it going out. Yeah. Also, mm-hmm. if you're running a forge, a charcoal or coal forge with a, an electric blower, never put your work in there and turn your back on it. You can't do that. Like, (laughs) with a a propane or an LPG forge, gas forge, you can leave that in there for a day and it's probably just going to scale up and die, but, you know, it's not going to burn. Five seconds too long in a coal or charcoal forge, it's gone. It's now two pieces.
1: It's really quite funny, actually, uh, because for a lot of people getting into blacksmithing or bladesmithing, they start with a gas forge and they develop this weird... Um, sensation or, or understanding that coal forges are primitive and they're, <laughs> they're less powerful and, and it's, an, it's a silly way to do things when we have modern fancy gas forges. Even a hand crank charcoal forge will liquefy a hammer billet. Easy. It will, it will drain liquid steel down into your tweer and into your axle. <laughs> it, it will just destroy it. Um, whereas or try to liquefy least, steel, <laughs> yeah, try and liquefy steel in a nine-liter uh, gas bottle forge. <laughs> yeah. It's
0: hard. It's it's, it's yeah. a lot of work,
1: but you'll do it accidentally in a coal <laughs> forge. Yeah. If yeah, every
0: everyone has pulled that sparkler out of a of a coal Oh forge.
1: yeah! If you've never seen steel catch on fire and burn in front of you, it's a humbling <laughs> experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You suddenly
0: realise, oh my god, the Joker was right. Everything does burn. <laughs> the worst the worst feeling in the world is when you get that tiny little bit of sparkler and you're like, oh, maybe I just saved it. And you put it on the anvil and you hit it with your hammer and it turns and it into goes, dust. <laughs> and it's just everywhere. And you've just got shards of steel that are just everywhere around you. And you're like, oh, well, that was a thing. <laughs> and it's
1: actually um, like... As a blacksmith, you don't – nothing really scares you much. Like you don't get mm-hmm. shocked by things as as much, like things that should be dangerous. You're kind of standing there going, oh, yeah, it's kind of – yeah, it's all right. Yeah. But working near a gas forge at forge welding temperatures is – it's intense, but it's kind of like, yeah, it's all it's right. Contained. It's contained. It's contained in that box. But standing next to a solid fuel forge that is at forge welding temperatures – is a strange experience because (laughs) the heat is like oppressive it's but the thing is um i've finally figured out what it is like i was trying to work out like why is this weird why does this freak me out so much and make me so nervous the flames are much bigger (laughs) than you can actually see because they're Mm. in the infrared spectrum Mm -hmm. It's sort of like when you've got a gas torch going and it goes to the blue. The the actual tip of the flame is far out past where you can actually visibly see it. And so you're looking at this fire and you're aware that there's more to it than you can see, Mm -hmm. but you can't see it. And it's like this portal that's opened to a hell dimension. (laughs) And you've got to reach in there and, and... grab something and you pull it out and it's on fire and sparkling and it's it's terrifying but it's kind of cool
0: at the same time this is especially true of like charcoal um because charcoal tends to create lots of very vivid flame Mm. uh with coal i found that it's much more contained because it's much denser well
1: it's it sits under the 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 mound of coal and so you've got to like peel back the gates of hell to get in there. <laughs> yeah. Whereas charcoal, like, it's just this, this orb of just energy. <laughs> it's awesome. And it, it may, it's so hot that it bends the light around it and
0: it mm-hmm. makes sound go weird. Oh, it does too. I, I remember working on the, uh, like, at a medieval reenactment event and I had the coal forge next to me and it, like, sounds coming from across the forge came through garbled yeah just just weirdly like they were almost resonating differently and coming from different angles it was weird it's
1: like such pure energy that your brain can't quite handle it because (laughs) nothing else that you've ever experienced is like it i love it personally and i Mm. because I used to teach people and in the second class that I taught, I taught them forge welding, all in a solid fuel forge. And they're like, how do I know when it's ready? I said, you'll know. And I'm like, hey, but, but what am I looking for? And I'm like, you'll know. And all of a sudden, the, <laughs> they would just be cranky. And all of a sudden, the fire changes and they're like, oh, God, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> and they're just looking at it hypnotized. <laughs> yep. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, so... um if that hasn't terrified everybody from ever using a charcoal forge for forge welding, I don't know what would,
0: I don't know. Like it's such a cool experience. It's honestly it one of it my is. favorite things. I wish I had a decent crank blower to, to run my charcoal forge. Cause I have to run it with an electric blower to, to make mine work. But yeah, I, I would love a crank blower. Cause just that, I love the, the ambience that it gives it when you've got a proper crank blower and a nice charcoal fire with that crackling fire pit.
1: Great. Yeah, I really need to finish restoring that buffalo blower like I got the whole thing oh, working I, I just need to build a new stand for it and de-rust the outside jacket
0: I was gonna uh, build one, myself a proper fuego one of the one day
1: oh yeah I just actually yeah. got a really lovely message from somebody that followed my online tutorial and did it and they've been using it for their forge and it's working really oh, well sweet. yeah nice. it was nice to hear because is, it is, is made a nice change from the people going,
0: that's not a Fuego. <laughs> it's not traditional. All the
1: neck beards. That's a Chinese box bellows. That's not a Fuego. I
0: was like, I don't give a fuck.
1: <laughs>
0: Fuego away and stop commenting on my videos. Oh, God. We've been going for like an hour and almost two hours. Yeah, people don't mind. We got one more email. I really don't. We do. (laughs)
1: It's from Ben Smith, and he says, Hey, guys, how do you guys keep forging ahead in spite of repeated failures? I know there's innate motivation when it's your livelihood, but that's a big one. (laughs) But do you have any advice for someone who knows it can be fun and wants it to be, but in the moment it just feels like a waste? Love the podcast and hope you guys are here for a long time because I'm a whiny bloke who will be bugging you incessantly, I'm sure.
0: I, it's the joy of creation. Yeah, I, I, so I've actually been struggling with this myself uh, recently. So this actually hits home for me. Um, <clears throat> and funnily enough, the person I I learned a trick from is someone that is a little contentious in the blacksmithing circles, uh, because he is the world's most famous YouTube blacksmith, um, Alex. Oh Steel. my god! Yeah, I know. Learning lessons from Alex Steele. Who knew? Um, he, back in the very early days of the Barker Street Forge, like Baker Street Forge, right? I love
1: the Baker Street Forge. I miss
0: uh, it. I miss it too. But one of, one of my favorite episodes of those was when he was having a absolute shit day. Like everything was going wrong. And he made an episode where he was like, everything's going wrong. Here's everything that's going wrong. I'm just going to make a leaf. And he was making a leaf because he knew he could make it. He knew he could make it well. He knew he could make it quickly. And it would give him something that he'd actually completed, right? And for me, that was immediately like, holy crap, that's what I need. Is I need a win. I need a small win. And that's basically what he was saying, was give yourself a win. And it's something that I forget a lot. And that's why when I went back to the forge after a while away, the first thing I did was make a a full tang, like slab scaled knife in like a day. (laughs) Because I needed a win. I needed to get back into making stuff and not making stuff to be like the ultimate knife maker and make it perfect. Just make something. And so when I'm struggling at the, at the gates of hell, when I'm like worried about my work, like obviously I've got a lot of other shit that I'm dealing with. So like my work is not the biggest problem, (laughs) but when I'm having a really bad day at work, I will just stop what I'm doing, and even though my livelihood is resting on me making the thing that I'm trying to make, I will instead make something else, completely separate to that. Sometimes it'll be a bottle opener, sometimes it'll be just a random twist, like a cube twist or something, just because I want to. But it's something that I enjoy making, it's quick to make, it's something that I can go home and I said, at least I made this today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that has kept me going, (laughs) and I forgot that for a while, and that question actually brought it back for me, and it's reminded me, so thank you very much. But that's, like, the thing is that we get into this because we love it. We know it's fun. We know we want to do it, but everyone has shit days. Yeah. And And so they they find you no matter what you're doing. So reminding yourself that you are a maker who can make literally anything that your mind comes up with out of steel with just your hands and some th- simple tools is really cool. Mm. And you just have to remind yourself of that occasionally.
1: And that sort of ties into where it comes from f- for me as well. Like I I'll visualize something in my mind and I think wouldn't it be cool if this thing weren't just an image in my mind and it was a real thing? And then there's that realization that happens that I could I could sketch it out and describe it in detail to someone like Sam or any other maker, and then they could make it. And it wouldn't be exactly the same as what was in my head. No matter how well I explained it and no matter how good they were, they wouldn't be able to do it because they can't see the picture that's in my head. I mean, in your in your imagination, you can hold it, you can feel it, you can get a sense of the thing. And literally the only person who can do it exactly like how it was in, imagined is is me or you or whoever's imagined the thing. And so sitting back and thinking, oh, somebody else might do it is not good enough because you owe it to yourself to bring this thing, like Sam said, create it out of nothing because like, that's what we do. We t- imagine a thing and then we make it so. Mm-hmm. We are like gods <laughs> in that regard. And it's... It's just fact, like only you are going to be able to do the the thing the way it is, you know, the only way that would do it justice. And that's that's kind of what I, I have cool ideas all the time, like, oh, to me, they're cool. I, I sort of think, hey, that, that'd be super cool. And I know nobody else is going to do it just the way I want it.
0: I've got to yeah. do it. And I mean, like, on a a super weird spiritual bullshit kind of angle... We're going deep. Iron has been considered an element in some circles. Not in, like, the scientific circles, but iron has been considered an element in a lot of fey folk kind of stories, Celtic mythology, stuff like that. And for a very long time, blacksmithing was considered an elemental magic. Mm. Right? Because we are literally able to take dirt and make it into shiny stuff <laughs> like tools that have like as I I'm very fond of saying the entire modern world came off the face of an anvil mm. and reminding yourself that you are a holder of historical elemental magic in your hand even if you're like a beginner smith who's never swung a hammer before the moment that you can make that nail the moment you can make that hook that you can then hang something from the wall the moment you make something that's usable that hot chisel that you the first tool that you ever make a hot chisel should be a hot chisel if you don't have one (laughs) but yeah if you if you the first time you make something you are taking something that otherwise wouldn't have existed and bring it into the world purely through the power of your mind and your body and a little bit of heat yeah and so like When we have those shit days, sometimes it's best to just put the tools down. If you're having that really bad day where nothing is going right and you feel like throwing shit at the wall and you just want to give up, sometimes the best thing to do is literally to stop and just walk away, (laughs) go have a whiskey, sit on the porch, look at the trees, listen to the wind. But sometimes just reminding yourself that if I want to, I can make a tool in five minutes (laughs) that no one else can that will still be
1: here in a thousand years
0: Yeah, exactly it's it is an amazing skill to have and so don't discredit the amount of power that that gives you um as a creator like even the simplest tools that i own like my hot chisel like my ball punch, all bunch of other stuff that I've made in five minutes that I needed for a job really quickly and never made a new one. Those things I made quickly and without thought are still with me and they're still working every day. Mm. And every time I pick them up, I'm reminded that I made that thing. So yeah, absolutely. Give yourself that win. Remind yourself that it's not about where you are now, it's where you're going.
1: And speaking of making cool things, we have a ForgeCast challenge this month, and that is to yeah. make a functional yet beautiful slitting chisel. So <laughs> chisels. Yeah, <laughs> so definitely get on that. Um, and if you make one, it's just a challenge, no competition this time. Just do it or not. I'm not a cop. Um, and if you're going to make one, show us, tag us on Facebook, or, or um, use the hashtag #ForgecastChallenge to on, on the post showing it off we'd like to see it there's all sorts of ways you can make a, a decorative uh, addition to a slitting chisel
0: i highly recommend looking hand. at mark Asbury's hot chisel that's one of my favorite slitting chisels that i've ever seen
1: yeah i made one for my mate adam that had a rubik's twist up the handle which was Ooh, nice. quite nice yeah and we would want to Put it all the way through in in a slitting um, (laughs) function, but it was nice to hold on to, to be honest. So, yeah. But um, if you guys have any other emails or questions you'd like to send in, send them to ask.forgecast at gmail.com and don't forget to follow us on the Facebooks and the Instagrams. Mm -hmm. But um, we're going to go get some damn sleep.
0: Yeah, that sounds good to me. After this two hour episode. So, where can uh, can people find you, Sam? (laughs) You can find me at Sam Towns Bladesmith on Facebook, Instagram, Etsy, YouTube, Patreon, Redbubble, uh, The Kitchen Sink. And thank you to those who actually did track me down on TikTok and message me. <laughs> you are sleuths. I have no idea how you did it, but you did it. Congratulations to Jamie at Sausage Man Forge for being the first man to find me and message me. Uh, he's you got cannot escape the way. No, no, never can. Anyway, thank you very much, guys. And where can they find you, Alex? I go by Valhalla Ironworks. You can find me on
1: Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, where I've got a new video out, finally, Uh, and um, Redbubble and Patreon. Yeah, and on the podcast, where you'll see me next week. Yeah, we'll both be here. (laughs) See you guys. Bye-bye.